Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome to the No Sleep Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about the ups and downs of trying to escape. It's our season 13 premiere. We're excited about our new season and even more excited about our special guest star joining us this week. Podcaster Elijah Wood will be joining us on our second story. Yes, some of you might know him from blockbuster movies, TV, video games, etc., etc., but to me, he's a podcaster first and foremost. And that's true. Elijah, along with Daniel Noah, are two of the partners behind the award-winning production company Spectre Vision, responsible for hits like A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and Mandy, to name a few. These two producers have always been fascinated by the dark allure of horror, even audio horror, like our podcast. They've started their first podcast called Visitations. On it, they explore the exhilarating, entertaining, and sometimes even therapeutic experience of facing one's fears in art. (laughs) Gosh, I can relate to that. Each episode, Elijah and Daniel travel to the home or workshop of one of their favorite creators in the genre community and beyond. Taika Waititi, director and star of What We Do in the Shadows and Thor Ragnarok. Friends of the show, Mike Flanagan and Dan Harmon. Anna Lily Armapur, writer-director of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Plus musicians, fashion designers, and more. Listen in on intimate conversations with these exciting artists as they explore the ways in which they've turned their deepest, darkest fears into art. I wonder if they do that in the dark hours when you dare not close your eyes. Never mind. That's actually the kinds of things we're going to be doing in Season 13 of the No Sleep Podcast. The theme this season is the horror slasher films of the 80s. And if you're old enough, uh, I mean mature enough to remember the days of movies on VHS tapes, you'll remember the thrill of watching those great and uh, sometimes cheesy flicks in your own home. We have lots of exciting features planned and live experiences and other goodies. So be sure you stick with us for our 13th season. And make sure you subscribe to the first season of Shudder's original podcast, Visitations. It's now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Shudder.com, or wherever you listen. So we're back, baby. And it's time to kick season 13 into high gear. So... Turn down the lights and grab the remote, because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we meet a bored event planner. You know what it's like. You're stuck somewhere for work. There's nothing to do, but you've got to stay. In this tale, shared with us by author Christopher Maxim, 
we discover that sometimes when you go looking to alleviate boredom, you'll find more than you bargained for. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Addison Peacock, and Sarah Thomas. So be careful when your restlessness leads you to stumble upon random numbers, and even more careful about where you enter them, because one of them just might be the elevator code. As a freelance convention planner, I stay at many hotels over the course of a year. I spend uh, about a week per trip in an all-expense-paid suite of my choosing, doing nothing but studying the location and interviewing staff on hand, you know, to get a feel of the hotel and its traffic. I then spend another week organizing the event and ensuring my client is satisfied with my plans. Now, there's a little bit more to it, but that's the overall gist of my job. If you can get over the constant jet lag, it's actually not a bad gig. In all my years of planning conventions, I must have stayed at over a hundred hotels with similar floor plans and architecture and staff training. They all kind of blend together in my mind. But one in particular will, will always stay with me. The Grovewood Inn, located just on the outskirts of Cape Cod. That one, that one kept me up for many nights even after I left. At first, my trip to the Grovewood seemed mostly forgettable. The convention I was planning it was really just a glorified book club meeting for a group of older women and some local authors. Uh, the service, the food, the layout of the hotel were all average and unexciting. The only thing I liked about the place was Clara, the desk clerk. I'd have even asked her out on a date if she hadn't been married. Now, I, I had planned boring conventions before, and I'd been to many sub-bar hotels. But this trip was remarkably mind-numbing. I just, I couldn't wait to be done with it. So one night at the inn, after a long day of mundane event planning, I flipped on the TV, poured a glass of wine, and climbed into bed. I grabbed the program guide from my bedside table and looked it over, hoping to find the porn networks. Anyway, as I glanced through the channel listings, something at the bottom of the page caught my eye. Written crudely in permanent marker was the following. Elevator code. 03, 08, 06, B1, 04, 02, 07, B2, 05, 01. Now, this was odd. I knew of hotels that had pin pads on their elevators, you know, usually to prevent children from using them, but the Grovewood Inn was not one of them. Plus, most pin pad elevators only required a four-digit code. Intrigued, I decided to call up the front desk to find out more. I was sure the code would turn out to be something trivial and uninteresting. But it was, at the very least, an excuse to talk to Clara again. Though unreciprocated, I enjoyed flirting with her, if for no other reason than to hear her infectious laughter. Well, a sip of wine and a few failed pickup lines later, I was back at square one. Clara didn't know anything about it, claiming there were no devices in the entire building that would require a code like that, much less one of the elevators. It, she did, however, point out that the numbers in the code aligned with every floor of the hotel. 
one through eight, plus the two basement levels. We both found this odd, but ultimately we, we couldn't make sense of it. Well, after getting off the phone with Clara, my curiosity got the best of me. I left my room, walked over to the elevator, and stepped inside. I then pressed the buttons in the order they were written on my channel guide, just to see if anything would happen. And much to my disappointment, the elevator did nothing but take me to every floor of the hotel before finally stopping at the lobby. Now, the front desk was in eyeshot of the elevator, so I quickly hit the button for my floor, not wanting to explain to Clara what I was up to. Though I didn't have a shot with her, it still would have been embarrassing to tell her I was spending my night playing around in the elevator. Luckily, I was able to escape unseen. Upon setting foot back on my floor, I noticed a member of the cleanup crew walking down the hall. That's when it hit me. The staff, they never used the patron elevators. They had their own service elevator to get from floor to floor without impeding the travel of guests. It may sound ridiculous, but I needed to know if that code worked in that elevator, if for no other reason than to placate my undying curiosity. So I inconspicuously made my way down the hall heading to the service elevator. Once there, the familiar sting of disappointment set in. A staff card was required to gain access, and no doubt to keep guests from using it. Well, feeling defeated and realizing how crazy I was letting boredom make me, I walked back to my room. There, after a few more glasses of wine, I drifted off and entered a long, peaceful, alcohol-induced slumber. I awoke many hours later to sunlight flooding my room and the familiar sound of a vacuum next door. Cleanup is always in full force early in the morning at these hotels. When the initial grogginess of waking up wore off, something came to mind. Something that caused me to jump to my feet and immediately exit my room. There, in the middle of the hall, was the cleaning cart, and there was no staff in sight. Hanging from a lanyard was the maid's staff cart, ripe for the taking. This was it. This was my chance. Maybe it was the slight hangover I had, or perhaps it truly was the monotony of planning a less-than-exciting convention. I grabbed that card and I ran to the service elevator like it was the last chance I had at having some adventure during my trip. Something about that code was calling to me. It was a mystery I desperately felt the need to solve. Upon swiping the maid's card and entering the elevator, I quickly punched in the code and waited. At first, nothing happened. The elevator didn't move, but all the buttons remained illuminated. I thought that maybe I'd somehow busted the thing, but the preceding moments proved this theory wrong. Without warning, the elevator raced up to the heights of the hotel, ascending much faster than normal. The digital readout above counted the floors up to eight and then kept going until it reached 12. Now, this was bizarre as the Grovewood Inn only had eight floors and there was no discernible reason the elevator should have been able to reach that height. By all accounts, I, I would have been in the sky by that point. After a few moments, the elevator door opened, revealing behind it a grand ballroom, the likes of which I'd never seen before in any of the hotels I'd been to. Victorian-era chandeliers hung from the ceiling. Beautiful silk banners danced from wall to wall. And hundreds of people 
dressed in old-fashioned attire and elegant facewear, waltzed about as a large band played a catchy tune. My jaw was on the floor. It's hard to explain, but a romantic fog filled the air. I watched as masked patrons danced in unison and partook in lavish festivities, completely oblivious to my presence. For a moment or two, I completely forgot about the hotel below, awestruck by the scene before me. Something about it was just absolutely intoxicating. Just as I was about to step out of the elevator, the music stopped. All at once, the ballroom guests turned around to face me and held their gaze with mine, almost as if peering into my very soul. It became quickly apparent that I was not welcome there. An uninvited and unwanted visitor in a room I was never supposed to reach. It was clear to me that it was time to leave. I tried pressing the button for the lobby, but it wouldn't light up. I tried floors two, three, and four. No dice. The elevator was stagnant, and I was trapped. I looked back over to the crowd, and, and to my horror, they had begun walking in my direction. Their march was slow, but without a working elevator, I had no means of escape. I was at the mercy of the ballroom and its occupants now, no matter what that fate entailed. With little in the way of options, I attempted to converse with the group. Who are you? What do you want with me? My query was met with little reaction. The only response I received was the continued sound of footsteps on the ballroom floor. Frightened of what was to come next, I backed up as far as the elevator walls would allow. A mouse cornered in a bird's cage. Just as the vultures closed the gap between us, an explosion of fire emerged from the background, overcoming the guests and engulfing the entire room in flames. I began to cough uncontrollably from the toxic smoke that loomed above. Beads of sweat the size of pearls dripped down my cheeks. To top it off, the guests were still there, standing at the foot of the elevator, somehow unfazed by the fiery heat around them. In between coughs, I managed to offer them one last question, though I knew it would probably go unanswered. (coughs) What do you want? A woman at the front of the crowd stepped forward. She wore a fox mask and a slight grin, though her lips would soon spread apart to speak. We want to be saved. At this moment, the flames took flight, rising to the highest heights of the ballroom. Molten skin dripped from the woman's frame like candle wax as her features morphed into a gruesome arrangement of congealed flesh and bubbling blisters. Won't you save us? In a grotesque slur of unnatural movement, the woman stumbled in my direction, arms outstretched. I stood in terror as her burnt fingers made their way to my neck. Just as she was about to make contact, the doors shut behind her and the lights went out. The bulb in the elevator, the fire in the ballroom, it was all gone. The energy around me had dissipated abruptly, leaving nothing but pitch blackness in its place. Somehow, I was alone. A few moments of confusion passed, followed by a loud roar from the elevator shaft below. 
All at once, everything sprung back to life, save for my fox-masked assailant. As the elevator dropped, I watched the digital readout count backward from 12. Eventually, I was back in familiar territory, safe and sound on the ground floor. Before the doors could fully open, I made a dash for the front desk. Clara! Hey! What's got you so frazzled? And what were you doing in the service elevator? If I had told her what I'd seen, she'd think I was crazy. Instead, I composed myself and asked for some information. Oh, uh, 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 did this hotel uh, ever have a 12th floor? Yes, it did. The Grovewood Inn was originally almost twice this height, but a lot of it burned up in a bad fire, so it had to be reconstructed. The top floor was a ballroom, but that was a very long time ago. She pointed at a framed picture on the wall behind her, dated 1913. Why do you ask? Oh, uh, no, no reason. Uh, just, just curious, that's all. I promptly made my way back to my room and reflected on everything. I wonder if I'd seen that picture without realizing it and dreamt up my elevator escapade. I discarded this thought rather quickly, sure that I was wide awake when it happened. I, I thought it maybe was something in the wine, but that was equally unlikely. There was no logical explanation for what occurred. And that's about it. I never found out exactly what happened that day in the hotel. I mustered up enough courage to try the code again, but it didn't work. It seems I was allowed a one-time glimpse into the past, a look at what was before and what might still be today had the hotel not been partially destroyed. I only wish that I could have taken part in the festivities before things went sour. Perhaps... Perhaps I could have prevented the fire and saved the patrons, just like the fox-masked woman wanted. All I can do now is look back on that day, completely bewildered, as I plan my next convention. Heavy metal music and podcasts. Two pretty awesome things. And the only thing more awesome is combining the two. But in this tale, shared with us by author D. Williams, we join two podcast hosts who discover just why they call heavy metal the devil's music. Performing this tale with me are Addison Peacock, Mick Wingert, Peter Lewis, Jeff Clement, and special guest star Elijah Wood. So put on your headphones and crank the volume up. Yeah, here we go. Get ready to thrash because this podcast shreds. Hey, Shredders, it's time for Shreds. That's hard. 
Welcome, Metalheads, to another episode of Shreds, your number one podcast for metal news and interviews, bringing you new episodes every Tuesday. This is your co-host and resident power metal expert, John Frazier. With me, as always, is the fantastic Ciara King, master of doom. Metal, that is. Not the game. Though I'm pretty good at that, too. I'm sure that would be true if you were old enough to have played Doom. Well, see, the way I understand it, you've got a pretty big show set up for us tonight. A very special guest that I think the fans are going to appreciate. You are absolutely right, John. Our guest for tonight should be calling in any minute now. But first, I'd like to hear about your weekend. That's right. For those of you who don't know, I was on gig duty this weekend, and I went to see Bitter Waters perform at the Castle, this little venue just outside Atlanta. And what did you think? Well, you know, see, Bitter Waters falls more into your genre, your preference in metal, if you will. I do know. Listeners, in case you don't know by now, John much prefers his metal to sound like the lead guitar is capable of shooting deadly rainbow lasers out of every possible orifice while riffing at a ridiculous speed. Absolutely true. And Bitter Waters is, well, not like that at all. But I have to say, I was impressed. It was pretty wild because, well, you know the castle has a lot of equipment issues in the past. Not trying to be shady, just telling the truth. And in the middle of this performance, Adelaide Slaughter, the lead singer, well, her microphone just blew. Oh, damn. Yeah, completely blew. And there was no backup available, not a thing they could do. So most bands would have packed it in right there, given refunds and just called it a day. But Adelaide, man, she kept right on going. This woman was just on stage, kept performing, giving it her all, shrieking her fucking guts out, you know? And was it the best quality of performance? No, but the professionalism to just keep going with the show. <laughs> wow. And the fans loved it. They went nuts because even without the mic, you could still hear her over the rest of the band. The woman has an insanely powerful voice. She does, yeah. My understanding is that she actually trained as an opera singer at like Juilliard or something. Well, goddamn, you can tell. It was amazing. Adelaide, if you're listening, you've earned yourself a fan for life with that performance. Awesome, truly. And now this coming weekend, C is on gig duty. So who do we get to hear about next Tuesday? Well, you all are going to get the scoop on Red Army's upcoming show at the Scorpion Lounge. So as always, if any of you guys are there and want to say hi, want to come have a beer, feel free to introduce yourselves. John and I are always stoked to meet fans at the show. We are that. So, see, I think it's about time we put the listeners out of their misery. Get the suspense over with and introduce who our special guest is going to be this week. All right. You guys have been requesting this band forever. Basically, since I did that gig duty review of them last March, I think it was. You guys checked them out and loved them and then just blew up our Twitter feed about them. So now... At long last, I am pleased to announce that we have an interview tonight with Rob Warren, lead singer of Blood of Isaac. You guys, this has probably been our most requested band in the history of the show, and I just want you to know I totally get it. I am fucking excited for this. Me too. So they're just getting back from a long and what I can only assume was grueling U.S. tour. 
and they're starting work on a second album now, which is why I think Rob has a little time to talk to us. This is going to be awesome. Uh, and in case you didn't know, listeners, C and I went to see Blood of Isaac again after she did gig duty on them for the show. Yeah, on the first leg of this most recent tour. Exactly, yeah. C went and saw them again with me, just so she could see the look on my face during their performance, and it was oh, just really fantastic, really out there. If you haven't gotten the chance to see them yet, I would absolutely encourage you to do so when they go on tour again. And that is our cue, everybody. Whoa! Oh, shit! Rob? Rob, is that you? Yeah, it's Rob. Okay, you gotta turn the music down or step outside or something. That is way too loud for us in here. Sorry, sorry. Is that better? Yeah, that's much better. Thanks. Are you gonna be able to work with that? Yeah, I can clean it up later. Cut that section out and make a smooth transition. Are you guys still there? Yeah, we're here, Rob. Just working out some of the recording kinks. Uh, Rob, it kind of sounds like you're in a car. Is something going on? Do you need to reschedule this? No, no, we're, we're good. I mean, I am in a car. <laughs> I'm driving to pick up Chris, and then we're going to head to our jam space to do some work. Is that okay? Will that work for the recording? Chris says in Christian color, the bassist? Yeah. That actually sounds great. I thought we were only going to be able to talk with you, but if you're both cool with doing, like, a tandem interview... Yeah, I already talked to him. Filled him in about the podcast thing. He's totally down. So you're heading to your jam space to work on this next album? Yeah, it's still in the concept stages right now, which is why we're at the space instead of the studio. It's more for rehearsals and stuff. Seems kind of late at night to be jamming. You're really going to piss off the neighbors. No, it's way in the middle of the woods on a friend's property, so we don't bother anybody. Location's top secret except to the girlfriends. Well, this is pretty awesome, Rob, to have you and Chris on the show. A special treat for our listeners. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to them for us? Oh, uh, sure. So, this is Rob Warren, lead singer of Blood of Isaac. Welcome, Rob. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be talking to you guys. You know, my girlfriend, Darla, loves your show. I did know. She is actually the one who corresponded with us to set everything up while you guys were finishing your tour. Right, yeah, yeah. Darla, you're listening. I love you, baby. Thanks, Darla. Couldn't have done it without you. Cute guys, very cute. So, before you called, Rob, Sierra and I were just talking about how we got to see you guys perform a little while ago and how really intense you get with the, um... Uh, well, I, I hate to use the word theatrics, but, you know... You're talking about the finale of the show? We are. So, right before your final song, you douse yourself in, well, what looks like a lot of blood. <laughs> it's, it's not real blood, I promise. Neil and Lewis are other members. They're both vegan. They don't do real blood. But yeah, uh, I suggested it way early on, and it fits really well with the story we try to tell with our performance. So we decided to just go with it. Yeah, yeah, fits well with your theme, too. You know, Blood of Isaac. Speaking of, I had always assumed the name of the band was some kind of biblical reference, but C here tells me that's not the case? No, it's it's actually a reference to uh, Isaac Miller. Isaac Miller. Um, I hate to admit it, guys, but I don't think I know who that is. 
He was a serial killer who operated just a few miles outside the band's hometown in Tennessee. Right, Rob? Kinda. Isaac and his followers actually took victims from all over East Tennessee, as well as Virginia and North Carolina. But his compound was located about 20 miles outside of where we, I mean, us band members grew up. Wait, wait, wait. Followers? Compound? Yeah. Well, he was also the leader of a cult. That's where they all lived. This was all in the mid-90s, a little before Heaven's Gate. Huh. How very modern Manson family. Makes total sense for a metal band, though. Drawing on some gruesome local history like that. But tell me, why the focus on the blood? Why blood of Isaac in particular? Well, the, the cult itself had an obsession with Isaac Miller's blood. I... I think Ciara probably has some knowledge on that. I do. So apparently, Isaac Miller and his followers believed that his blood had the power to open portals to hell through which they could summon demons. Oh, of course. To do their bidding, I suppose. Well, kind of. See, they summoned the demons so that Miller could mate with them. Okay, gross. Yeah, I'm not super sure of the goal there. Maybe to create a race of half-demons to, like, take over the world or something. I guess ordinary demons don't really blend in with the crowd. Anyway, they thought that to sustain his power, Isaac himself had to drink the blood of the innocent. Hence, the victims. Yeah, and that's why it took such a long time for the police to figure out it was a serial killer. The range was so wide, and the people who disappeared didn't seem to have anything in common. It was all because his followers were the ones taking them most of the time. Different followers grabbed different kinds of people. They didn't figure it out until a local girl went missing, and somebody remembered seeing her get in a cab with Isaac at a bar. See, he he did sometimes get victims himself, mostly young women. They say he was really charming, I guess. That's also why we dress the way we do for our shows and stuff, in the dress shirts and pants. It ties into this whole handsome missionary from hell sort of deal. Okay, okay, so, I I mean, I gotta know how this all wound up, but honestly feel like we're way off topic with the music aspect here. No, it's, it's totally cool. I mean, the entire thing is actually really important to our first album, the one we just toured on. We were trying to tell the story of Isaac Miller, show it from his perspective, but in music. So this could be like a learning thing for your listeners who might not know. But uh, anyway, yeah, the cops raided the compound after they connected Isaac to the missing girl. After a standoff, they ended up killing him and arresting most of his followers. In the aftermath, they found what was, I think, 32 burned human bodies in a pit in the woods, just a couple hundred yards behind the main building. They also found a bunch of video recordings of the victims. Isaac and his followers killing them in this fucked up ritualistic way, drinking the blood. Apparently, he liked to watch them over and over again when he was, like, uh, doing stuff with the demons, I guess. Okay, fucking gross. Yep, and all true. And you can find those videos on the internet, which I would not fucking recommend. But I think you're leaving out the best part, Rob. Best part? Oh, yeah. After Isaac was killed, before the cops could swoop in and get the followers, they, uh, they ate him. Oh, what the fuck? 
dragged his body inside, ripped him apart, and fucking ate him raw. God, why? Get this. He told them to. He taught them that if they ate him, they could preserve his power within themselves. Then someday they'd be able to open another gateway to hell and bring him back. And then that ties in with all the blood during Eat of My Flesh. That's the final song in our set, the ones you guys were talking about before. It's symbolic. Well, I think you guys really hit that nail on the head. And at least the dude's cult didn't have any illusions on where he was going to end up, am I right? So, finally, and then I swear, listeners, we will get back on track talking about the actual ban. Why have I never heard of this guy before? Well, when it was all over, they tried to keep it kind of hush-hush, because they didn't want to freak out the general public. Makes sense. It was pretty fucked. No. I mean, what they didn't want everyone to know was that some of Isaac Miller's followers escaped. Oh, fuck that. Okay, Rob, that I did not know. That is creepy as hell. And even so, now here you guys are, drawing attention to it again. That's got to be stirring up some severe controversy for you. You have no idea. Yeah, I just pulled up outside Chris's place. Let me let me go get him and, and we can keep talking. Chris, come on, we're running late. He's almost in here, just one sec. You gonna be able to clean all this up, too? Rolling with the punches, buddy. I'm in. Let's go. Here, take my phone. Put it on speaker. I've got Sierra and John on the line for the podcast interview. Can you hear me still? Yeah, Rob, we can hear you. And do you have our other surprise guest with you now, too? I do. Oh, uh, hi. This is Christian Culler. Friends call me Chris. I play bass for the band. Hey, Chris. Great to have you on with us. Thanks. Thanks. It's cool to be here. I mean, I mean, well, not here, here. Here is just a Pontiac, but like here on the show. I mean, I'm sorry. I've never done this before. (laughs) There's a reason we don't put a mic by his face during shows. Don't worry, Chris. We're just talking. Rob was telling us a little bit about the inspiration for the band's name. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, that's some pretty scary stuff, man. A very cool choice for a band like yours. Uh, thanks. So Chris, Rob was also telling us there's been some controversy related to the band. You want to weigh in on that? What the fuck? You told them about the fucking email? God damn it, dude. We should not be talking about that. I didn't but you just fucking did. God damn it! I I knew, I knew I shouldn't have trusted you to deal with this interview by yourself. Uh, Me? You're the one who fucking blabbed about it. I didn't even do anything, and it's just a fucking email anyway. Uh, 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 just a fucking email? You need to pull your head out of your ass. Whoa, 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 guys, guys, whoa. What's going on here? What email? It's... It's nothing. No, man... You already fucking said it. Just tell them. I mean, I'm curious. Listen, I'm sorry I mentioned it. I really don't want to talk about this. Don't be a pussy. Just pull it out of my phone and read it to them. It's already out there. (sighs) Fucking fine. Hold on. 
Okay, I got it here. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You ready? Yeah, man, go for it. <clears throat> we see what you are doing. You should not mock what you do not understand. Stop now or you will regret it. He returns soon. Then you will know the true power of the... of the blood of Isaac. We got this bullshit in the band email about halfway through our last tour, and shit has been fucked ever since. Okay, that is... Uh, okay, really pretty unsettling. Yeah, I don't like the sound of that. But I mean, surely it's just some crazy fan. Who sent it to you guys? That's the thing. There was no sender. It didn't come from any address. It just, it just fucking appeared. No way to reply, no way to track down who sent it. It's, it's nuts. This is definitely not what I was expecting when I asked about controversy. Come on, guys, it's just a stupid email. Fuck you, no it's not. After we got this, someone carved stop into the side of our tour van in, in huge letters. We would stay at motels for the night and wake up to find red paint or some shit smeared above the doors. Going on stage to perform, there would be these, these people in the crowds, man. They're not fans. They, just these creepy fucking people. They would just stand and stare at us. And by the end of the set, they'd have disappeared. It, it, it happened at almost every goddamn show. It didn't matter how far we travel. And once we got home, man, I found a fucking deer disemboweled in my driveway. The cop said it was probably just roadkill that someone had pulled to the side. It wasn't roadkill, goddammit. Okay? This weird shit has been happening to me and to Lewis and Neil and even fucking Rob, even though he's never going to admit that it's not a prank and then it really is fucking scary. Okay, okay, fine. So some creepy shit has been happening, but that doesn't mean that... Whoa, guys, what's going on? Are you okay? Fucking shit, dude, what was that thing? Rob, Chris, can you still hear us? What happened? I hit a fucking dog. They ran out into the road and I hit it. Oh, Jesus Christ. Ciara, this has gone completely off the rails. I think we need to cut this now and do what we can to save it in editing. I don't think that was a fucking dog, man. That was way too big to be a dog. Well, of course it was a dog. You can see it right there. Guys, I think it's going to be best if we let you go so you can... No, 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 no. Please stay on the line. I think there's something really fucking wrong here. Oh, God. What's the call? Stay on, I guess. Oh, my God, it's moving. It's still alive. I gotta try to... Don't! There's something definitely wrong with it. Do not go out there. But, but it's still alive. We gotta take it to the animal hospital or something. What the fuck? What the fuck? What? What's going on, guys? Oh my god. What's wrong with its face? <clears throat> just, just pull around, man. Just fucking drive around it. It's getting up. How can it be getting... Holy shit, it's moving. Drive, Rob! Fucking drive! Guys, you have got to tell us what's going on. 
It was, it was like a dog or, or a wolf or something. Its face was all fucked up. It was all just fucked up. And its eyes tried to jump out of the car. It got all these bones sticking out of its fucking skin and it, it still tried to jump on the car to go through the windshield. What the fuck was that thing? Jesus fucking Christ. Guys, guys, I think you need to take a breath, okay? Calm down. It sounds like maybe you just hit a rabid dog or something. No, man, that was something else. I don't know what it was, but it was not just some rabid dog. Rob, there's more of them. What? Keep your eyes on the fucking road, man. They aren't, they aren't chasing us or anything. They're just, they're just, just there on the side of the road. Just, just watching. Jesus, we must have passed 10 of them already. Okay, there is definitely something not right happening with you guys right now. Maybe you should just turn around and head back home for the night. We can't. Neil and Lewis are already at the space. What if those things go all the way out there? What, what, what if they're, they've got them trapped inside and they need help? We gotta make sure they're okay. Listen, we're all still on Rob's phone, right? Yeah. Okay, use Chris's phone to call the others and make sure they're okay. We'll stay on the line with you until you know. Okay. either of them. Okay, well, just keep trying. They're gonna... Oh, my God. Oh, fuck. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's on fire. The jam space is on fire. Lewis! Neil! What the fuck are you guys? Chris, did you say the building is on fire? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on fire. Neil's car is here, and, and Lewis is, too. You guys need to get out of there now. The fire could spread. Get Rob and get out of there. Chris, 
I'm right here. You have to keep running. Call the cops. <laughs> what? Oh, we don't know where they are. How can we tell the cops where to find them? Call Darla. What? Darla? Yes. Call Darla, goddammit. Rob said only the girlfriends know where the jam space is. Well, she is Rob's fucking girlfriend, and you need to call her and tell her to send the cops out there right fucking now. Her number's saved in my phone. Do it now. Okay. Please don't hang up. Please, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. I won't hang up. I'm right here. It's going to be fine. Just keep running. I'm trying. I'm trying. It's so dark. You're sorry. The person is unavailable. There's no answer. Keep trying. My leg! I broke my leg! I think I broke my leg! It's okay, Chris. You're okay. Talk to me. Talk to me. You have to get up and keep running. Can't get again! still, and try to be really, really quiet. It's dark. Maybe they won't see you. Can you be quiet for me? Okay. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. She's not answering. Is there anyone else we can call? I don't know anyone else. Keep trying her. He's, he's coming. It's him. Oh my god, it's him. It's him. Who, Chris? Who is it? No, 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 please. Please, no. Please, please. Answer me. Oh my god. Hello, John. Sierra. Where the fuck is Chris? What the fuck did you do to them? How, how does he know our names? I'm afraid a Christian can't talk right now. As for your names, there are very few secrets in hell. Who the fuck are you, man? My name is Isaac. I thought you would know since you've been talking about me so much. F 
Fuck you. You're not an undead fucking serial killer. You're just some obsessed nutcase out hurting people for no goddamn reason. Oh, you think so? Well, either way, disrespect does not go unpunished. Yeah, well, I'm sending the cops out there right fucking now, and they are going to blow your ass away. Well, I'm not sure you're going... What are you doing? I'm trying Darla again. We've got to reach her. We've got to get someone out there. Rob and Chris, they could still be alive. They need help. That was him, John. That was really him. What? What are you talking about? That was Isaac Miller. That was his voice. Oh, you're fucking crazy. We're sorry. The person you have called is unavailable. No, John. I've seen the fucking videos. The rituals his followers taped. That was his voice. No doubt. What if this is real? What if... What if he's really back? What if he can do the things they said he can? I mean, the, the dogs they saw? Fucking hellhounds. Just shut up, C. It's not real. Hello, John. What the fuck? How, how did he get her phone? Was she with them too? Was she at the rehearsal space? No, John. I told you. It's real. He's back. <gasps> what, what the fuck is this? What? Sorry, John. You were a good friend. Hello, Cece. The fear makes it taste better. Just like you said. It's been such a long time. I was so... Perfect, quiet, and well-behaved. No one knew a thing, did they? Not even the Foster families. Not even John. My good girl, did you record it like I asked you to? I did the best I could. It's only audio, but nowadays people seem to really like it like that. Oh, I'm sure I will, too. I'm so glad you're home. I've missed you so much, Daddy. Hear that scratching in the walls? 
that squeaking under the floorboards, the pitter-patter of tiny feet? Uh, Maybe it's nothing, or maybe it's rats. Rats are creatures that you don't want to be surrounded by at the best of times. But as is the case in this tale, shared with us by author Marcus Demanda, especially not when you wake up chained in a basement. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Matthew Bradford, and Mick Wingert. So pay attention because not everything is as it seems, and friends can be found in unexpected places when you're faced with a combination of red meat and rats. I woke up in the dark, concrete at my back. My head hurt. The inside of my skull felt like there was a small animal scrambling inside of it, trying to claw its way free. My arms were stretched over my head, hands cinched with leather cuffs. The cuffs were strung together with... What? The word wouldn't come. It felt like this stuff in softball mitts. Rawhide? Was that the word? My jacket was gone, along with my shoes and socks. My left eye wouldn't open. Through my right, I could make out a shape outlined in bright light ten or twelve feet away. Rectangle. That's called a rectangle. That's a door. Where was I? Suddenly I realized, with a lurch that chafed my wrists... Not only didn't I know where I was, I couldn't think who I was. And then a voice called from the darkened, muddy well of my memory. Red meat. Looks like Buddy got himself some red meat today. (laughs) Ain't it just so? Ever been bled before? Ever been chewed on? your feet to the rats, girly. Gonna cut out your throat and eat it till you're dead. Till you're all dead. I wanted to throw up. Faintly and far off, almost not to be heard, I could tell it was raining outside. The sound was muted, like I was hearing it through more than one wall. I'm in a basement. That's what this is. A basement. My feet hardly touch the floor. My toes scratched against damp earth. Not even a floor at all. The basement was unfinished. Someone forgot to do the floor. The ground was wet. A shadow against the light of the doorframe came into view. A creature on four legs, half the length of my forearm. It had gray hair. It had two large front teeth, shining pink. Its eyes never brightened. They were as black as the absence of dreams. I knew what it was. It was a rat. A big one. Was that why my feet were bleeding? Suddenly, as if it could tell I'd come awake but couldn't move, it came for me. I jerked my feet up, kept my knees bent, planted my feet flat against the wet concrete wall. 
My wrists and arms and shoulders should have groaned in protest, but I didn't even feel it yet. The little monster was right under me, jumping up and down, its teeth clicking inches away from my shins. Holding the rawhide wrist ties was a length of steel chain. Looking up drew my attention to the other child, the one strung up on the opposite wall. I could tell right away that he'd been here longer than me. Much longer. And he was dead. Pieces of him were missing. Some, no doubt, chewed away by the rat. Or rats. His left arm had been hacked off at the bicep. There was nothing left of the lower arm. Not even the bones. His neck had been sawed through. His head hung sideways. I could see clear through to the spinal cord. I didn't recognize my own voice. I only knew it was mine because I could feel it erupt from my lungs, wasting energy, and maybe alerting whoever put me down here that I was awake, that I was ready for him. And then a voice, speaking to me from above, hovering just under the ceiling. It was soft. It went straight through my ears and grew in my brain, like a thought I wasn't having. That's me. Its voice was young. It could have been a classmate. And maybe it was. I couldn't remember. I couldn't get out. I couldn't get away. But you can. I saw him, floating above me in black and white like a photo-negative of the corpse hanging on the other end of the room. Now be quiet. I felt something on my hands. Another body, warm and hairy and awful. Another rat. It was grasping two of my fingers in its forepaws. It was squeezing, gently, as though to comfort me. Calm down. I'm going to get you out of here. I'm in the rat. The rat at my feet was still trying to bite me, but the rat at my hands, tail wrapped around my wrists, didn't attack. You need to shut up. You need to think. I want to help you. He winked at me. I clenched my teeth. I caught my breath, closed my eyes. I tried to summon strength to keep my feet from being gnawed into beef jerky. My name's Timmy. Who are you? Timmy? That was the name of the sixth grader who'd gone missing, along with his sister, two weeks ago. I remembered that. Next thing I knew, I remembered that I owned a softball mitt. It was in my closet at home, where my walls were painted green and had Def Leppard posters on them. With my eyes shut and my mouth quiet, I remembered everything. I spoke to him. My name was Rowan Sawyer, but I went by Row. I was 12 years old. I was in the seventh grade and on the honor roll. I had a baby sister and also a brother at college. My parents were divorced. I spent most of summer with my dad. I played catcher for the Lake Ridge Brewers. Dad worked during my weekday practices, 
so I rode my bike to and from the fields. It was only three miles from the townhouse. I wasn't a baby anymore. But coming home on Tuesday, something happened. I guess I wasn't paying very good attention, and I wasn't wearing a helmet. No one ever did around the neighborhood, not unless you wanted people to make fun of you. I'd had a good practice. Coach said I could play the whole game on Saturday, especially since Devin was sick. He said he could see my improvement every day. So I didn't see the truck, not until after it hit me. Actually, it hit my back wheel, just as I was crossing Oakwood off of Deepford. I can't be sure. The memory's still unclear of that exact moment, even now. But I think the truck accelerated to make sure it got me. All it got was the stupid back wheel, but that had been enough. I spilled out onto the street. My head and the side of my face went down, unprotected, smacking against asphalt. I blacked out, but not for long. I was coming to when the man got out of the truck. The side of the truck read, Lake Ridge Family Home Builders. He was big. I didn't look all the way up to his face, but through blurry vision, I could make out the name Buddy on his shirt. I would have expected him to call for help, or if he was going to be a dick about it, to hop back in his truck and drive away. But he did neither of those things. Instead, he sprayed something into a cloth. Water, I thought at first. Then held it over my nose and mouth. God, how it stank. Sleep tight, princess. Somebody's eating high on the hog tonight. He picked me up. By the time he threw me over his shoulder... My eyes had shut of their own accord. But for a short time, I could still hear him. I felt myself set down on my back inside the truck. I could hear him call me Red Meat and talk about bleeding me and eating me. He said it over and over again, and he laughed. I'm going to have to use its teeth. I'm going to make you bleed a little more. It'll help. It'll help you shimmy free. And the cuff's too thick. There's no way the rat can chew through all of it in time, and the rawhide's even worse. Just hold on. The Timmy ghost whispered in my brain, floating just above the rat he controlled. I felt him start. I felt the rat teeth on the leather, occasionally nicking my wrists. What about... The other one. I tried not to make too much noise. Tried to suck it up. Tried not to scream or puke or piss or crap myself. But the tears flowed freely. The other rat. What happens when I fall? When you drop, beat the shit out of it. Yeah, right. Hate rats. Hate them. Hate them. My legs were getting tired. Hold on, Ro. Don't wimp out on me now. This is going to take time. Warm blood trickled from the heels of my palms over the leather of the cuffs. The Timmy ghost kept talking to me. The Timmy rat kept chewing, mostly at the cuffs. But when the bleeding stopped, I'd feel his teeth again, 
I'm going to have rabies. Doctors will put needles in my stomach. I prayed for it. Let it happen, God. Please, give me the rabies and needles and everything, but please, God, please, get me out of here. The cuff slipped an inch, two inches. The Timmy rat kept tearing at them. With all the leverage I could gather against the wall, and with my weakened, half-numb arms, I wrenched at the restraints. Panic and desperation were my friends in that moment. On just the second heaving try, I dropped. Right onto the other rat. The normal one who wanted to chew on my feet. I did what the Timmy ghost said. I started to beat the shit out of it. The Timmy rat dropped down too, and attacked it. I got a couple more bites in the exchange, including one to my cheek, where a dog-eared flap of skin now hung loose, stinging horribly. But the rat fled back to its original corner. I staggered toward the light for the doorframe, reeling. I was exhausted. I was dizzy. The door opened easily. Beyond it was a staircase. It ascended to more darkness. But just here, there was a single bulb in the ceiling with a string switch, burning my eyes with bright white light. On a stool propped up against the wall lay a blood-crusted hacksaw. The Timmy rat followed me. That's what he killed me with after he got bored. Took him a while. Not sure how long. I wasn't thinking about time when he did it. I turned from the horrific thing, clutching my stomach. It clenched and unclenched, like it wanted to puke but couldn't. Maybe there wasn't any food in me to puke up. But I took it, of course. People who left behind the hacksaw, or the knife, or the gun, or whatever, always got killed. I was only twelve, but I knew that much. He was just here. He'll be back soon. This is the only chance you'll get. You have to keep going. Get the others. I know where they are. They might be alive. Instead, I returned to the room. I don't know why I did it. Or how. I don't even know how I looked at it. But I returned to Timmy's dead body and cut it free from the wall. I dragged it by one hand to the stairwell. He wasn't heavy. Bro, there's snow. Shut it. I'm not leaving you down here. That's all. The rat in the corner didn't bother me, but it followed. I looked up the stairs. Another door. I didn't hear him lock it. Bro, move your ass. I hauled him up the stairs, clutching the hacksaw in my teeth by the handle, ignoring the pain in my feet. The Timmy rat ran ahead of me. Tentatively, the other rat trailed behind, keeping to the shadows. The Timmy ghost's voice and image began fading. Once you're out of here, do not look behind again. Only ahead. But follow me. I'll still be in the rat. I'll show you the way. At the top of the stairs, I looked behind me one last time. The other rat was there, hanging back three steps down. It eyed me, chittering, teeth snapping, trailing its own blood from its battle with the Timmy rat. How do you know? The way, I mean. I whispered to you. 
Someone else whispers to me. It's complicated. No time. I stood there, one hand on the doorknob, one holding the hacksaw. I listened for something, anything, on the other side of the door. All I got in exchange was the rain and the Timmy ghost's final words to me. I would have just gone into the killer, you know, if I could have. It's just, he's kind of big and I'm so new at this. I haven't been dead very long. Good luck, Rowan. Open the door. Follow me. It sounded like goodbye. I didn't understand, but I opened the door and stepped through and found myself in a skeleton house. It was half built, whole wall sections empty, looking out into the open night. The dim illumination of silvery clouds cast the shadows of other houses, all incomplete. There must have been a mile's worth of them. The ground was all mud, no grass or pavement. The rain fell in waves and sheets. A silent lightning flashed, and I saw the truck. Inside the truck, I saw the shadow of a man, of Buddy. I saw the orange cherry of a cigarette, saw smoke blow through an open window. But he wasn't smoking like my dad. He was drawing in and inhaling in one motion, then holding his breath. I was transfixed. Just seeing him paralyzed me with dread. But he didn't see me yet, and the Timmy rat ran ahead. Farther into the complex of houses he scuttled, then paused, waited. I could sneak around. Keep to the shadows. Make for the open road. I could do it. And even after all I'd been through, I was fairly certain that if it came to it, I could outrun the tub of lard that was the monster named Buddy. Get the police. Go home. Instead, I let go of Timmy's dead hand and followed his rat. And I didn't look behind. Deeper into the neighborhood that doesn't exist yet, we went, slipping, squelching mud. The shadows of the skeleton houses under the light of the cloud-masked stars were like spider webs. We passed one house, two houses, a third. At the fourth, the Timmy rat skittered inside, led me through the ground floor, stopped at a familiar door, a basement door. Shit, shit, shit. God, no. Behind me, more scuttling feet. Not just one. I wanted to look. I had been told not to. I opened the door and made my way down the stairs. I fumbled around until I found the string for the light and pulled it. I opened the second door. The body was ruined and unrecognizable. And there were more rats. Exactly two of them, both sitting on his shoulders. There was no way they could have gotten in here on their own. Buddy must have planted them. The Timmy rat turned back for the stairs. I understood. There was no helping this one. I hacked down the body anyway, choking tears 
fighting the swelling sickness that threatened to send me reeling back to unconsciousness. And I dragged it back up the stairs. What's the point? It's not like you're dragging them all the way home. No, it wasn't. But I just couldn't leave them strung up where Buddy had put them. I'd leave them on the ground floor. I'd escape and tell the police what I had done. Maybe they would understand, even if the Timmy rat didn't get it. Peering out from the shadows of house number two, watching the man who had abducted me slog with laziness and confidence back to house number one, where he expected to find me, I remembered something else. This neighborhood was going to be called Stony Cove. I'd seen the signs when the trees went down last year. I remembered my father yelling from the rolled-down window of his car at a bunch of construction workers. They were at this very site weeks ago. They were holding signs. My dad was a real estate agent, and the construction workers had gone on strike. I don't think Buddy saw me in the car that day. I don't recall seeing him. The important thing was, the site was abandoned. The kids, both the living and the dead, could remain here for weeks. And Buddy had time on his hands. As Buddy passed in through the non-existent wall of my original prison house, I darted after the Timmy rat again. He passed one house, two houses, three, four. Behind me, I could only hear the ever-increasing number of little rat feet that followed in my wake. There was no way to know how many. I didn't look. It was all I could do to keep my balance in the mud, in the rain, through the haze of a scrambled mind half convinced it had lost itself. I followed the Timmy rat, and the other rats followed, perhaps dozens by now. The basements where Buddy kept his victims had two rats each so far, but the construction site was teeming with them. They were everywhere, ducking out of sight behind turned-over trash cans, shadows racing in the dark behind abandoned tractors, gathering behind me, clicking, chittering, swarming. They didn't follow me into the next house. They stayed outside. They waited. I could hear them. Their numbers did not diminish. And in the basement of that house, I found a living girl. She was unconscious. She couldn't have been more than seven years old. Her skin was so pale. Her face looked like frozen milk. Both of her feet had been eaten away. Her legs ended at the ankles. But she was breathing. I cut her down, then retied the rawhide knot so that I could string her small hands around my neck. My hands shook so terribly. I was crying. Had never really stopped crying, I realized. I felt like I would never cry this out. Even if we made it. Even if I lived to be a hundred and ten. I'd never be able to cry enough for this. I'm getting you out of here, Lily. 
I followed her brother, Rat Timmy, back up the stairs to however many dozens of rats had gathered since I'd begun this trek out of the first basement. I remember reading about you, Lily. I'm so sorry this happened to you. I'm taking you to a hospital. I'm taking you to your mom and dad. I was tempted to risk the time and fucking kill the two rats in this room, but I left them and the hacksaw behind. There would be no fighting buddy now, even if I might have had half a chance before, which was doubtful. The only option was escape and the police. If he caught us, we were dead. Simple. I could hear him even before we left the basement. He was roaring. He was mightily pissed off and... I carried Lily back up the stairs. I carried her outside, back into the world and the rain, back to where I knew Buddy would be looking for us. The rats kept to the dark until, again, they were in a position to follow me, unseen. I didn't look back. I'm the Pied Piper without a pipe. I wonder where I'm leading them. But I knew. And it wasn't really me, anyway. It was the Timmy rat, and the other rats were under his spell. Bitch! Goddamn fucking bitch! Come on out and show yourself, you fucking whore! Oh, sure. That's what I'm going to do. Especially since you asked so nicely. Buddy was big and strong, and he was a monster. But he was a moron, too. Stone, pathetic giant of a moron. Still dangerous. Now more than ever, maybe. We went behind the houses now, tracing a wide semicircle around the back of the construction site. It would eventually lead back to the. We were headed to the truck. That was the last place I wanted to be. I stopped. Buddy was lumbering all through the middle of the skeleton neighborhood, stomping and cursing and hollering his desperation and rage. Get back here, you dumb little asshole! Fucking twat! Stupid little shit basket! Were you spoiled as a child? Did mommy get you everything you wanted when you cried? I'll come out wherever you are! How original. The Timmy rat circled my feet frantically. The army behind me was so large now, the sound of it was like part of the rain itself. The rawhide that bound Lily's hands around my neck burned, even though I was soaked. I was cold. I was still crying. I wanted to sleep so badly. (sighs) Okay, go. And I followed him for one final stretch. I wondered what he expected me to do. Were the keys in the ignition? Did he want me to run the fat-ass child killer over with his own truck? Drive Lily to the hospital? I was 12. I wouldn't even know how to get the truck in gear. But then we were there, and it wasn't long before I understood. At the driver's side door, He scrambled up the leg of my blue jeans, 
half up my shirt and threw himself against the window. This did nothing, of course, other than tell me what to do. I set Lily on the ground, found the biggest rock I could lift, and smashed the window. The truck was facing Buddy, head on, from a distance of 50 yards or so. And he'd heard me. The game was up. My hand was shredded. I didn't even care. Using my clothes for a ladder, the Timmy rat crawled up again, scrambling to the doorframe, and hopped to the steering wheel. Hanging from his tail, using his teeth and his foreclaws, he switched on the lights, even as Buddy charged us, howling with inarticulate rage, shielding his eyes. The Timmy rat had created the perfect cover out of light. Not for me. I moved in front of the light and stood there, outlined in the glow, but for what waited behind me in hopping and scuttling waves. They passed around Lily. Not one of them ever touched her, at least not then. I'd had no idea how many of them there actually were until Buddy realized it, too. And for him, it was way, way too late. There weren't dozens of rats. There were hundreds of them. They intercepted him easily, and at least ten feet before he made it to me, he went down flat on his face, shrieking. Ever been chewed on, buddy? Looks like we got some red meat, buddy. Somebody's eating high on the hog tonight. The blood pooled under the hill of rats like a spreading pond diluted with rainwater. I returned to Lily, wrapped her arms around my neck again. The Timmy rat was gone. Maybe he'd gone for a bite as well. If so, I hoped Timmy wasn't in the rat anymore. I hope he went to heaven just as soon as his work was done. As for the rat itself and its very large family, there was plenty of Buddy to go around. I did end up having to get the rabies shots. I stayed in the hospital for two weeks. Longer than Lily, actually, who at least got out long enough to go to her brother's funeral. There were head doctors long after my face and my feet were properly stitched up, long after the pneumonia had subsided, long after the police stopped looking for the real story within my fever-ridden dreams. The basements of those houses hadn't contained two corpses. There had been six missing kids from three different states. Buddy would have been caught sooner or later, and probably sooner. The strike ended just days after he was already good and safely dead. Timmy hadn't been interested in those other kids. He might not have even been interested in me for all I know. The only one I was sure that mattered to him had been Lily, his sister. He'd known somehow she was still alive. We've kept in touch, Lily and I. We became best of friends in spite of the age difference. Her parents love me like I'm one of their own. Most importantly, Lily believes me, even though she never saw any of it. 
I don't think she did anyway, but... I whisper to you. Someone else whispers to me. It's complicated. Or maybe not so complicated. Maybe it's the simplest explanation of all. Grave robbing. It's a bad idea in general. You never know what you'll find down there. But it's an especially bad idea when you're in Egypt and you're breaking into the tomb of a pharaoh whose name has been erased from history for mysterious reasons. But in this tale, shared with us by author Evan Dicken, that's exactly what a woman finds herself doing. Performing this tale are Addison Peacock, Kyle Akers, and David Alt. So maybe don't go breaking into tombs and desecrating sacred ground, because some things are simply best left buried. Kyle and I hauled on our pry bars and the tomb door ground open. Mueller, get that wedge in. As the portly British man squeezed between the two of us with steel brace in hand, I cast a nervous glance at the desert. It was silly to worry. We were miles north of the main dig and no one had seen us leave. Still, it wasn't only the dry chill of the desert night that raised goose flesh on my exposed arms. Kyle, are you sure? Don't worry. I promised you'd see the inside of a crypt. Didn't I? He had. Back when he'd begged me to visit him in Egypt. Kyle had made it sound like a vacation, going on and on about the Sphinx and the Great Pyramids. He hadn't mentioned that we would spend most of our time cataloging tiny shards of pottery in temperatures that hit 90 degrees in the shade. There. It's set. Shame, though. I was looking forward to the dynamite. I hope you're right about this one. Mueller stared dolefully at his small crate of explosives. Kyle's eyes were bright as the full moon overhead. A lone mastaba, carved into the bedrock itself. This has to be Nibkari's tomb. It had better be, because you're not going to get another chance. Let's get the gear. Kyle flashed me a confident grin as he went back to the truck. I didn't know how he could be so calm with the country breaking down around us. Protests in Cairo and Memphis threatened to shut down the airports and strand us in a nation on the brink of revolution. Kyle tossed me a flashlight from his pack. Don't be worried, Allie. It'll be like I said. A few pictures, some rubbings, in and out. I know. I looked away. It was just like Kyle to ignore everything but his obsession. After all... He had me to worry about the details. Kyle leaned over to kiss me on the forehead. His lips were hot on my skin. 
almost feverish. Mueller loomed in the shadow of the door like a flabby gargoyle. Back in the comfortable confines of his air-conditioned trailer, I had found him charming, even a little ridiculous. But out here, with nothing around them but miles of desert, I wasn't so sure. The embattled Egyptian government had closed down the main dig yesterday, leaving Mueller as the only choice for gear and transportation. When I'd asked how Kyle knew the man, he'd mumbled something about them working together in the past, then quickly changed the subject. Mueller flicked the beam of his flashlight towards the entrance. After you, my friends. Wind plucked at my hair as I followed Kyle into the tomb, sweeping across the doorway behind them with the breathy whine of a teapot set too long to boil. The passage led down into a small, square room. On the walls, I could make out human and animal shapes in flaking paint. A high stone bench was the chamber's only furniture. Kyle ran his fingers along the carvings, while Mueller went immediately to the back. I played my beam across a tableau of men and women prostrating themselves before a large, wolf-headed man. Masked priests knelt at the front of the crowd, their skeletal arms buried deep in the chests of corpses, or at least what I thought were corpses, until I noticed the exceptional care the ancient painter had lavished on their terrified eyes, their wide, screaming mouths, and the straps that held them down. Anubis, god of the afterlife. Kyle spoke from right beside me. I jumped at the sudden noise, then gestured at the painting, anxiety bleeding into irritation. I'm not stupid. I'm sorry, it's... It's just... Got it. There was a puff of dust from the far end of the chamber. Mueller brushed flecks of stone from his shirt. One of the cracks had widened to almost a hand's breadth. Alice, hold the light while we get this open. Kyle hurried over to help Mueller. The wall peeled back with a harsh noise of protest. In the darkness beyond stood a statue of the same wolf-headed man from the painting. Ah... The Sardab. Good work, my friend. Mueller slapped Kyle on the shoulder as he edged past him into the shadow of the next room. Kyle stepped over the broken wall to marvel at the statue. Is this him? The Anubis figure? I think it's meant to represent Nibkari. You see, Nibkari was the eldest son of Jedefre, a king of Egypt. The current theory is that when Jedefre died, he was succeeded by his younger brother Khafra but there's a half-finished pyramid from the same period as Zawiyat el-Arion. The Egyptians didn't build pyramids for just anybody, which means there's a missing king somewhere. I think Nebkare is our guy. So why isn't he in the pyramid? That's the question. And the wolf head? Jackal, actually. I don't really know. Early Egyptian rulers were often represented with the heads of cobras or birds to show their divinity, but I've never heard of one like this. I stared up at the fierce, fanged muzzle, while Kyle snapped pictures of the statue. Mueller's voice echoed from the darkness. There's a hole here. Oh, unbelievable. It's... Oh, bollocks. We found Mueller in the center of a wide, columned chamber, kicking a pile of rusty pipes. Do you see this? Will that damned Corsican dwarf ever stop plaguing me? He held up a length of pipe. Kyle's shoulders slumped. 
I touched his arm. What do pipes? Those aren't pipes. They're French muskets. When Napoleon's forces occupied Egypt, they stole or destroyed thousands of artifacts. If the French were here... I tried to hide my relief. The tomb was empty. We would have no choice but to go back to camp. Back to the States. Back to normal. I'm sorry, Kyle. My beam reflected from distant metal as I turned back towards the entrance. What's that? Probably more muskets. No, that's bronze. Mueller followed my beam. He stooped over the object and straightened in surprise. It's a Roman centurion's helmet. And here, a Macedonian falcata. Kyle jogged over to have a look. I squinted at the weapons and armor. No bones. They just left their stuff here? I spun around towards the darkness behind me, the small circle of my beam tracking the sound. Rows of columns led off into the murk, their thin shadows moving in time with my light. All but one. Allie, you okay? I glanced over my shoulder, the beam of Kyle's flashlight white-hot in my eyes. I winced, and he sheepishly lowered his light. Sorry. When I turned back, the odd shadow was gone. It had probably just been Kyle or Mueller's silhouette, distorted by distance. There was no way someone beyond me could have cast a shadow that big. I shook my head. I'm okay. Just thought I heard something. Might be bats or scorpions. The idea of things skittering around in the ancient dark made my skin crawl. I took an unconscious step toward the entrance. Kyle grinned. I'm kidding. It's just the wind. These old... The nearest column gave way with a resounding crack, raising a thick cloud of dust as it fell. Something hissed by my ear, and my cheeks stung as if it had been slapped. I clapped a hand to my face, fingers probing at the row of shallow cuts. Kyle! My beam refracted through the swirling dust, unable to pierce the cloud. I'm here. Kyle's breathless voice came from somewhere on my left. I blundered forward, arms outstretched, only to stumble over something. My leg, woman! My damn leg! Help me! I felt soft hands paw at my calf, but kicked them off. I needed to find Kyle. As the dust settled, I was able to make out a blurry shape near one of the columns. It limped toward me, one arm held tight to its chest. Kyle coughed and spit grit onto the floor. (coughs) Are you all right? Yeah. I wasn't near where it fell. The pillar missed me too, but I landed on my shoulder. I think it's sprained. Where's Mueller? Back there. He's hurt. We picked our way through the rubble. The Brit lay amidst a pile of fist-sized rocks his thigh pinned beneath a canted slab of stone. A thin stream of bloody drool leaked from the corner of Mueller's mouth. The pry bars. Kyle started to kneel. I pressed a hand to my bleeding cheek. We'll never find them in this. We should go back- Muskets! Use the damn muskets! I won't be able to carry them. You go. Kyle cradled his arm as he looked at me. I nodded, 
negotiating the rubble on legs gone shaky with adrenaline. I stumbled over to the muskets and tested a few against my knee. Something touched the cuts on my cheek. It was soft, like the brush of a spiderweb, but moist and clammy. The trembling beam of my flashlight darted from shadow to shadow. There could be anything in the feral gloom. Bats, rats, scorpions, anything. A trickle of sand fell in the distance. That's what must have touched my cheek, sand. And the wetness I'd felt was just blood from my scrapes. I looked up at the ceiling and felt my stomach tighten at the thought of all that rock held up by just a few unstable pillars. Mueller looked even worse when I got back. Sweat dampened the collar and armpits of his shirt and cut pale tracks through the grime on his face. Okay, we're gonna try to lever the stone. Do you think you can pull yourself out? Mueller gave a jerky nod. He groaned as we wedged the muskets underneath the slab. I put my shoulders to the makeshift levers and nodded to Kyle. He gripped one with his good arm and bore down. Mueller's moans rose to a high-pitched wheeze as he churned the rubble with his hands, dragging his twisted leg free of the wreckage. I couldn't hold back a gasp as I saw the extent of the Brit's injury. The shin was bent at an unnatural angle, two splintered sections of bone poking through the ragged flesh beneath Mueller's knee. Kyle squinted at the break. What do we do? I don't know. Didn't you take first aid? That was back in high school. They didn't really focus on compound fractures in lifeguard training. Maybe we can use these muskets as a splint. Mueller strained as Kyle and I bound his leg and lashed two bent muskets to either side. Then, with one of us under each arm, we got him to his feet. I staggered under Mueller's weight, the vinegary smell of sweat filling my nose and mouth. We edged forward each halting step measured by Mueller's inarticulate curses and the hammering of my heart. By the time we reached the entrance chamber, his cries had dwindled to whimpers. Down. <laughs> Mueller settled down on the stone bench with a hiss. I massaged my aching back, glancing at Kyle. Let's get back to the truck. Not yet. The burial room, it could be just beyond the columned hall. I have to see if it's Nipkare. You can't seriously. So I've uh, got to get some things. Wait, what? I... I owe some money. When we lost the university grant, they... They were going to close down the dig. Mueller's associates, they... I wouldn't have accepted, but... I was so close. You've been helping him rob tombs? That's... It's not like that. He doesn't take anything of historical value, and... It's not like I'm the only one doing it. The Egyptian government sells artifacts to private collectors all the time. That's not the same as what you're doing. I know. I'm sorry. I just got in over my head. Please, Ali, you've got to help me. If we find Nibkare, museums will be falling all over each other to give me a position. I just need to pay Mueller's bosses back. After this, I'll never have to do this again. I looked around the room, frowning. Mueller didn't seem too much of a threat, lying there with a shattered leg. But the thought of the type of men who would employ a tomb robber filled me with foreboding. I didn't want to see Kyle hurt. 
I shifted from foot to foot, an angry groan building in my chest. Never again? Never again. Kyle took my hand, his smile almost pathetically relieved. He knelt next to Mueller. Are you going to be okay for a few minutes? Mueller nodded, lips pressed into a tight line. Kyle gave my hand a squeeze. Thanks, Allie. You won't regret this. I promise. The burial chamber was smaller than I'd expected. Just a rectangular room about 20 feet wide and twice as long. Recessed shelves lined the wall, filled with clay pots, glass bottles, carved ivory combs, and other oddments. I can't believe the French left this here. Kyle went to a heavy stone sarcophagus on a raised dais. Could you come over here? I need to take a closer look. What about Mueller's stuff? Just a second. This may be important. I pointed the flashlight at the coffin. More painted jackal heads glared back at me from the cold stone. Kyle bent close, lips moving as he translated the ancient text. After a few minutes, the quiet shadows started to make me nervous. Kyle waved at me. I've almost got it. Got what? This is Nebkare's tomb. <laughs> he laughed and slapped the sarcophagus. According to this, Nebkare was king after Jedefre. Why did they hide the body? Not just hide the body. They tried to erase Nebkare. The answer is right here. Kyle picked up a statuette of Anubis and put it in my bag. When a man or woman became king, their ka, their soul, merged with that of a god becoming half-human, half-divine. Originally, they bonded with Horus, god of the sky, but during the Middle Kingdom, it changed to Ra, the sun god. Nebkare, though, chose Anubis, a powerful patron, but not one that would sit well with the nobles of the people. Kind of like if the Pope started worshiping the Grim Reaper. Anyway, it looks like the Egyptians rose against Nebkare, which left them with a body and a problem. They couldn't put him in a pyramid, as that would mean admitting he was a true king, but they also couldn't just forget about him. Why not? I wrapped a piece of charnished jewelry in gauze and grudgingly added it to the others in my pack. Kyle took out his camera. Remember, he bonded with Anubis. And the god of the afterlife isn't someone you want to piss off. It looks like their solution was to bury Nebkari with all the proper respect in a secret tomb, then remove all mention of him from, well, Everywhere. This is huge. When I publish my findings... Wait. If you do that, won't everyone know we were here? That we took this stuff? Grave goods, actually. The Egyptians believed that when a person died, the things in their tomb would come with them to the afterlife. Okay. Won't everyone know we took these grave goods? That's the beauty of it. If anything comes up missing, we can blame the French. face was pale in the wan light. We ran toward the sound, my full pack slapping painfully against my back. The entrance chamber was spattered with blood, but there was no sign of the big man. Do you think he went back to the truck? With his shin snapped in half? He couldn't have even gotten up from that bench without help. That's not a bench. It's an altar for offerings to the deceased. Okay, fine. Mueller couldn't have gotten up off the altar without help. So what happened? Jackals 
maybe? Jackals? I saw some back on the road. They're scavengers, but I've heard of cases where they'd attack injured people. Could they drag him out of the tomb? Maybe. I raised a hand to my cheek, feeling for the raised cuts underneath the crust of blood. There were four, in ragged parallel. It was a moment before I could work enough saliva into my mouth to speak. I think we need to leave. Now. Kyle didn't respond. He only stood, mouth open as he stared into the blackness behind us. Something stirred in the gloom, sliding through obsidian shadow like a swimmer in a midnight sea. Luminous eyes caught the glow of my flashlight, their unblinking gaze thick with cruel promise. I wanted to run, to drop everything and flee screaming into the night. But the eyes seemed to exercise some terrifying hold over me. The circle of my beam crept across the floor to illuminate the thing. Its fur was the flat, lusterless black of decayed flesh. Clawed hands opened and closed, twitching as if to shred the air itself. Lips drew back from fangs the color of old bone to reveal long jaws meant for ripping and tearing. It hunched forward, head low, whipcord muscles taut beneath dusky skin. Nibkare. The name jolted me, freeing me from the terrible gravity of the creature's call. I hurled my pack at the thing, but missed by several feet. The creature lunged, not toward us, but after the falling pack. It snatched the knapsack from the air a few inches from the ground, cradling it like a newborn babe. Kyle, run! Nebkara's head whipped around, eyes like glowing coals in the gathering shadow. The beam of my flashlight jittered on the floor of the passage as I ran. I could hear Kyle close behind. The door was a moonlit silver in the darkness ahead. Sand had blown into the tomb, a thin layer that made footing treacherous. I imagined the creature's clutching talons snaking out of the darkness to drag me back into the tomb. Rocks scraped painfully along my back as I slid sideways through the small opening and out into the night. I took a few more steps, feet twisting in the stony sand, and cast a fearful glance back towards the tomb. Nothing stepped from the entrance. Not Nebkari. Not Kyle. It had him. I staggered back to the truck, sand rasping in my dry throat. I should drive back to the site and get help. It was the smart thing to do. I got into the truck, easing the door shut quietly behind me. It was a few moments before I could stop shaking long enough to gather my tattered thoughts. I felt for the ignition and found it empty. Mueller had the keys. My stomach churned. If I ran now, it could mean hiking across miles of desert with some sort of ancient Egyptian werewolf chasing me. Still, I couldn't just sit there. I searched the truck for anything I could use. The packs were gone, the equipment back on the floor of the entrance chamber. The roadside assistance kit yielded a tire iron, some water, and a flare gun with two shots. I almost missed Kyle's fanny pack underneath the seat. I knew it probably wouldn't contain anything useful, 
but I was desperate. Amidst the gum wrappers and loose change, I found a dog-eared picture. It was of Kyle and me, standing in front of our ratty old apartment, arms around each other. Kyle, you idiot. I knuckled a tear from my eye. There was no way I could run. Not now. I crept down the passage into the empty room. Flashlight in one hand, tire iron in the other, the flare gun tucked into my pants. The chamber was empty. No sign of the packs. No sign of Kyle. My shoes made soft, scuffling noises on the floor of the columned hall as I picked my way through the detritus left behind by Nebkari's past victims. The crypt was exactly as we had found it, everything back in its original place. Twin drag marks snaked through the light dusting of sand on the crypt floor. I followed them to the wall behind the sarcophagus. Carefully, I worked the tire iron into the joint where the walls met. The back section of the crypt pivoted on unseen hinges to reveal a sloping tunnel bored down into the rock. Distant firelight painted the passage in several shades of hell. I edged toward the light, careful not to dislodge any of the loose stones at the tunnel. The crypt below was almost an exact replica of the one above, save that torches burned on every wall and the floor was littered with piles of bones. Sonorous chanting drew my attention to the far side of the room, where a man stood with his back to me. He was naked except for a heavy skirt belted about his waist. Long hair, the same shade of necrotic black as the wolf thing's fur, fell unbound over skin, the color of burnished teak. I didn't need Kyle to tell me that this man and the creature were one and the same. I crawled across the polished tile floor, careful to keep the heaps of bones between me and Nevkari. Mueller sprawled across one of the piles, head twisted at an unnatural angle, a ragged bite wound in his neck. I winced as I fished the keys from his shirt pocket. His flesh held not even the ghost of warmth. Kyle lay face down between two clay urns. I crept forward, eyes on Nebkari. I felt Kyle's neck for a pulse and was relieved by the thready beat of his heart. I put a hand over his mouth and leaned in so my lips were almost touching his ear. You have to wake up. His eyes snapped open, and he let out a muffled groan. Mm. The chanting stopped. I looked up, just in time to catch a heavy backhand that sent me crashing through a pile of ancient bones. Pain exploded against the side of my face, bright stars arcing across my vision. I tried to get my bearings. Skulls turned to powder beneath me as I flailed amidst the dusty skeletons of men and women thousands of years dead. My flashlight and tire iron went skittering across the floor. Nebkari stood over Kyle, eyes like cut gems in the torchlight. Kyle tried to crawl away, but his injured arm hung limp at his side. Nebkari took a slow step forward, an unpleasant smile on his lips. 
My shoulder knocked over a large clay urn as I tottered to my feet, head throbbing and vision blurred. The pot shattered, spilling gray-black dust over the tile floor. Nabkari spun, smile fading as he saw the broken urn. As he advanced on me, the skin of his face cracked like old paint, peeling back from flesh grown gray and gangrenous. Pallid threads of muscle snapped with the discordant twang of overtensioned cables to reveal yellowed bone and pulsing black organs beneath. New flesh spread like mold across the twisted armature of Nebkari's skeleton, reminding me of a time-lapse recording I'd once seen of a fox decomposing. Only Nebkari's eyes remained unchanged. In them, I saw not just my death, but the death of everyone I'd ever known. I saw entire civilizations ground to dust beneath the remorseless tramp of time. I saw the world itself disappear, the stars go out, and the sun shrivel to a tiny speck in an ocean of endless night. I flung out a hand to steady myself as the jackal drew near. My questing fingers met smoothed and rounded stone, the carved head of a small statue. Nebkari's gaze flicked to the side, and I was free. Back off. I lifted the statue above my head, vision swimming with effort. Nebkari glared at me through narrowed eyes, but did not approach. Beyond the creature, I saw Kyle stand and stumble towards the door, my flashlight in his hands. Kyle! He looked back, face contorted with raw, animal fear. His eyes seemed unable to focus on anything but Nebkari. Help me! Grab some of the grave goods! We can... Kyle made a soft, whimpering sound in the back of his throat and ran. Nebkari paced back and forth, stalking closer with every pass. My sweaty hands kept slipping on the smooth stone of the statue. When Nebkari tensed to pounce, I threw it as hard as I could. The beast let out a startled yip as the effigy sailed over its head. I heard claws scrabbling on tile as I grabbed a torch and ran up the passage. I slammed the door shut on the false crypt, sparing precious seconds to push one of the nearby jars against the portal. My shadow twisted amidst the columns as I sprinted through the long hall, finally making it to the empty chamber. I sprinted up the passage, too frightened to care if I tripped or fell. The open door was less than a dozen feet away when I felt Nebkari's claws rake down my back. I lunged at the rectangle of moonlight, but stumbled as heavy jaws closed around my ankle. There was no pain, only a terrible sense of being held. I kicked and beat at the beast, but Nebkari didn't let go. I dropped the torch to fumble at my waistband for the flare gun pointing it with unsteady hands, even as the creature dragged me backward. The flare was noon bright in the confines of the passage. Nepkari reeled back, one of his eyes becoming a miniature sun of white phosphorus. Sand filled my mouth as I scrambled through the door. Clawed hands stretched through the small opening, forcing it wider. 
I dug in my pocket for the second flare. I almost tripped over a small wooden crate next to the entrance of the crypt. Mueller's dynamite. I loaded the pistol as I half stumbled, half fell down the slope. Nepkare was almost out of the door when I spun and leveled the gun. Moonlight illuminated the sickly burnt side of his face, the flesh already starting to knit together. I pulled the trigger and prayed. The flare arced into the box of dynamite. For a moment, there was nothing. The air was snatched from my lungs and I was sent tumbling back. Chunks of rocks pillowed deep furrows all around. One hit me in the shoulder, smashing me to the ground. I rolled in the sand, gasping for air as I clutched at my shoulder, expecting to feel the sharp, wet texture of splintered bone. Instead, my fingers found unbroken skin, tender but unharmed. I pulled back my hand, surprised. Kyle ran from behind the truck and knelt to hold me. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. This was all my fault. A cool breeze stole through his hair, picking through the strands, just like it would pick through his bones once he was dead. I twisted in his arms to stare up at the smoking remains of the tomb. It looked different, somehow. Strangely enough, I felt the same way. Above me, one by one, the stars began to wink out. Allie, please forgive <gasps> Kyle drew in a shuddering breath, transfixed by my gaze. I could see him die, see his flesh peel back in gray-black strips until only a beautiful, grinning skeleton remained. Kyle moaned as he crabbed backwards through the sand. I stood to follow him, my strides as measured as the trickle of sand through an hourglass. Oh, please. No. I'm sorry. No. I'm sorry. I felt my old form, my mortal form, fall away like so many wasted years. Tears cut glistening tracks down his cheeks. I reached for him, with hands grown large and black-furred. I'd been blind before, but my eyes had been opened. One did not stare into infinity and come away unscathed. Kyle had abandoned me in the tomb, left me to die. He'd never really loved me. Not like he loved his research, his reputation, himself. This revelation would have devastated me a few hours ago, but it didn't matter now. After all, I thought, as I cracked open Kyle's ribcage, he would have eternity to make amends.
In our final tale, we join a group of friends heading to the L.A. Toy Convention. But instead of having a great time buying things like anime body pillows, this group finds themselves stuck in traffic. As shared with us by author Kevin David Anderson, we soon discover that congestion is the least of their worries. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Nicole Goodnight, Dan Zapula, Jesse Cornett, and Kyle Akers. So lock those doors and buckle up, even when you're at a standstill, because you might end up dealing with blood, gridlock, and pez. I hate birthdays. Not other people's, just mine. The universe, with its transcendent sense of humor, seems to gather up a year's worth of misery, and then, on my birthday, delivers the whole painful lot in one big annual cosmic joke that I never seem to get. On my seventh birthday, my dog was not just killed, but dragged under a car for almost half a mile, screaming. Our house burnt to the ground on my 10th birthday, and on my 11th, my dad split from my mom, leaving her with a black eye. My 16th birthday is the day I received my first sexual advance. A pretty momentous day for most, but for me, it was the day I discovered that many people thought I was gay. To make things worse, the guy making the advance also happened to be my uncle. I threw up, off and on, for at least a week. But believe it or not, one birthday trumps them all. One which no amount of therapy could erase the images chiseled in my memory. On my 18th birthday, I found myself sitting on the highway next to a corpse. Blood gathered in pools around the body as the afternoon sun gave it a sickly glimmer. I remember thinking how much the dark liquid seemed to belong on the pavement, like oil, transmission fluid, or lizard green coolant. The blood was at home on the asphalt. It's amazing what you notice when events force you to grow up in the span of a moment. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This story really starts two hours earlier, with Gina. What the hell? Gina sat in the passenger seat of my 2004 Mazda sedan. We both gawked, open-mouthed at the distant flames licking the sky about a half mile ahead of us. The car accident that had turned all five lanes of the interstate into a massive parking lot had apparently become more serious. Even in the daylight, the soft glow from the fire cast an orange luster on my windshield. A thick mushroom of black smoke rose from the carnage, then bled into the afternoon sky. No way that can be good. I glanced around at the surrounding vehicles. Most of the drivers had turned their engines off. 
Every few minutes, a highway patrol car, paramedic, or ambulance sped past along the shoulder. But other than that, nothing moved. Jesus, Craig. We're never going to get there. How long have we been stuck here? About 20 minutes. Ugh, feels like forever. Why can't they just move the bodies to the side of the road and open up a couple of lanes? Christ, Gina. People are probably dying up there. Yeah, well, I'm dying here. And I have to pee. I reached over and held up my half-empty big gulp. One container, no waiting. Have you ever had a straw shoved up your nose? That's why I love you, Gina. All that sweet pillow talk. Oh, go suck an elf. Are we there yet? Pitt, my best friend, was waking up in the back seat. It had been Pitt's idea to go to the L.A. toy convention, just a few hours' drive from our hometown of Delano, California. Knowing my luck with birthdays, Pitt wanted us to get out of town, reasoning that if anything bad were going to happen, at least we would be near the beach. I looked at him in the rearview mirror, and before Gina or I answered, Pitt's eyes flickered like dying light bulbs, then winked out as he fell back asleep. Growing up together, Pitt and I had developed the same fondness for toys, comic books, video games, and all the other things that anchored us solidly in the harbor of our youth. Our hobbies didn't exactly endear us to the opposite sex, but they helped forge a bond between us, a bond that I thought couldn't be broken. Then came Gina. Shit, he can sleep through anything. How would you know what he can sleep through? What the hell is that supposed to mean? I had been rehearsing my response to such a remark for two weeks. I started working on it about the time I caught Pitt and Gina together at school. Nothing was incriminating about their manner, it was simply the fact that they were together. Until then, I was under the impression that they didn't much like each other's company, and only endured it on occasion for my benefit. Whenever he could... Pitt told me what a bitch she was, and Gina never missed an opportunity to call Pitt a loser. Seeing them together just didn't fit, unless I was missing something. The opportunity for accusation had arrived, but as I opened my mouth to speak, a car horn started beeping. The intensity of my gaze should have transfixed Gina, but the odd blaring of the horn stole her attention. She looked back over Pitt and out the back window. I think someone's car alarm is going off. Why would someone turn on a car alarm in a traffic jam? I don't know. There. Uh, two cars back. Do you see him? I reluctantly turned around. I saw nothing at first, but then the strangeness of the scene drew my gaze like lightning to a rod. Two cars back and one lane over was a man ramming his forehead repeatedly into his steering wheel. There's something you don't see every day. He's gone crazy. Well, he is driving an El Camino. That's never been the trademark of sanity. The man using his car horn as a percussion instrument stopped abruptly and sat up. Then he began speaking or possibly yelling. We couldn't hear anything, but 
He looked as if he was an actor in a silent movie, exaggerating the pronunciation of whatever it was he was saying. Oh, what do you think is wrong with him? I don't know or care. Maybe he has to pee. Gina turned back to me. Look, Craig, do you have something to say? Seriously. Because this dancing around crap is getting old. My moment was gone, and my courage left me like helium escaping a ruptured balloon. She was now the aggressor, and I no longer felt accusatory, no matter what Gina and Pitt were doing behind my back. I sank into my seat and reached into my shirt pocket. I retrieved a collectible Dumbo Pez dispenser, one of the many toys we all collected. I quickly dispensed a grape candy and popped it into my mouth, then held the dispenser out to her. Pez? It was the perfect peace offering. While I was still in film school, we had met in an online Pez forum. Our conversation quickly moved into a private chat room where we discussed all the finer points of stem colors. If I knew Gina, she'd think the gesture romantic. Her mouth relaxed, her luscious pink lips smiling. A silent moment passed as her features softened and she again resembled the girl I'd fallen in love with. Just for a moment, I was taken aback. Could I fix this? She accepted a candy and held it to her mouth, then gestured to the dispenser. Oh, doesn't that belong to Pitt? Yeah, I took it from him when he fell asleep. I'm holding it hostage until he kicks in for gas. Tired of him freeloading. I could tell she wanted to say something in Pitt's defense, but she hesitated and pursed her lips. That's when I knew. Gina and Pitt were together, and this was not fixable. Do you have something you want to tell me? I wasn't really sure if I wanted to hear the answer. Her lower lip quivered. I thought for a moment she might produce a tear. But she suddenly looked out the back window. What is he doing now? Who? That guy. She pointed over Pitt's sleeping head. My gaze followed, once again finding the man in the El Camino. He was now slamming his head against the driver's side window and still mouthing some unheard silver screen monologue. Jeez, somebody get a net. <laughs> he really needs to switch to decaf. <laughs> Gina shifted in her seat and then abruptly looked down at her seatbelt. Damn. What? This belt hates me. It unbuckles when it wants to and sticks when I want out. She tried buckling it, but it wouldn't catch. At our current speed, I think you're pretty safe. Just help me? Why don't you get this damn thing fixed? It's a bit tricky. You have to hold the button down and click it in before you release. I reached over and grabbed the buckle. Our hands touched and she immediately pulled away. Her reaction felt like a knife turning in my gut. Happy birthday to me. I finished securing her belt, then faced forward. With my hands on the dashboard, I rested my head on the steering wheel. I wondered for a moment if Mr. El Camino got any kind of satisfaction by slamming his head into the horn. I know you don't love me anymore. 
Gina let silence speak for her as she sat forward in her seat. But do you even like me? I felt her hand on my shoulder, and I tensed up, waiting for her to speak. But the next voice I heard wasn't Gina's. Hey, do you guys know there's a guy back here slamming his head against his window? Yes. Why do you think he's doing that? Why would anybody do that? Craig thinks he has to pee. Wow! What? He just broke the window with his head! I turned around. The man in the El Camino was bleeding from his forehead. Maybe someone should go see if he's alright. Are you nuts? I didn't mean somebody us, I meant somebody else. It came out harsher than I had intended. Pitt must have detected something in my voice because he turned toward Gina and me with a confused look. Okay, what I miss? Shut up, Pitt. Just shut up. Yep, definitely missed something. Pitt slumped into the back seat. Gina leaned into my personal space. Let's just have a nice day. We've been looking forward to this for months. When we get back, we can... She didn't finish. Maybe it was the first time she was going to say it out loud, or maybe she didn't want Pitt to know how she was going to phrase it. Hell, I didn't want to know how she was going to phrase it. I looked back at Pitt. He seemed to be catching up on what was going on, and I could tell he wished his dance with the Sandman hadn't ended when it did. He folded his arms across his chest. He may have been preparing to say something, but the look of growing horror on my face as I looked past him out the window must have given him pause. Christ. Gina and Pitt both turned around to follow my gaze. Mr. El Camino had gotten out of his car. He stood next to his open door, his right foot tapping the white line that divided the lanes. His hair was dark and disobedient in all directions, except where blood had matted to his scalp. His eyes were so wide open that they looked like huge white spheres that would have been more at home on a cartoon character. When he took a step forward, it was awkward and jerky like the darting movements of the Keystone Cops in a Max Sennett's silent comedy. I would have expected Buster Keaton or the great Charlie Chaplin to join him on screen if it hadn't been for the enormous axe he gripped in both hands. The dried blood caked on the stainless steel blade, and his now audible ranting shattered any illusion that what I was watching was a classic from the golden age of silent film. I don't recall the rest of that afternoon as a continuous stream of events, complete with living characters moving from scene to scene in a cinematic transition. It's more like still images in a slideshow I'd rather not watch. I have a mental picture of him leaning down and peering into the passenger window of the vehicle next to his El Camino. He screamed at the glass, leaving speckles of saliva on the window. 
The woman on the other side of the glass was trying to ignore him. Sitting in the front passenger seat of an all-terrain vehicle, she turned her head away and continued talking to the man in the driver's seat. The driver was also doing his best not to make eye contact with the screaming maniac. They both seemed to come from a place where the credo is, if you don't look at crazy people, they'll just go away. I have to believe that the couple would have reacted differently had they been able to see the axe. Mr. El Camino held it slightly behind him, and from the couple's point of view, his presence was merely an annoyance, like a homeless guy threatening to clean their windshield with a soiled newspaper. But we saw it, and the twenty or so people looking on from various vehicles saw it. We all saw it, and we simply did nothing. Paralyzed with some sick fascination for impending violence, everyone peered out like patrons at a drive-in waiting for the horror movie to move beyond the opening credits. I guess it hadn't occurred to anyone to venture outside and offer assistance or, at the very least, yell a warning to the couple. Perhaps we all harbored the same childish illusion. The illusion of safety you feel when tucked comfortably in a car with the windows rolled up. Like kids hiding under the covers to ward off the closet monster. Without warning or hesitation, Mr. El Camino reared back, the axe held high and brought it down on the windshield. The first blow demolished the glass. The second blow did the same to the woman's face. Holy shit. Did you see that? It's time to leave. Dozens of people around us came to the same conclusion. I opened my door and stuck out my foot. The passenger fleeing the Chevy truck in the next lane flung his door open. Our doors collided, sending mine back, closing on my leg. The pain was crushing and I felt it in my teeth. A herd of people rushed by, and leading the pack was Pitt. He must have escaped through one of the rear doors. When there was a break in the stream of panic, I pushed the door open again, stepping out on my injured leg. They immediately turned back, half expecting to see the business end of the axe too close to fend off. What I saw instead was the man climb from his SUV, and make his way around to confront Mr. El Camino. Or maybe he was trying to help his passenger, now hemorrhaging in long red streams from what was once an attractive face. When he got there... Wait. The next few moments are bathed in images I don't wish to remember. So let's fast forward past the next few and pick up the action as Mr. El Camino wrenches his axe from the man's lifeless chest. My portfolio is diverse! Ching! Ching! You must diversify! I am at best paraphrasing the dialogue of Pitt, Gina, and myself, as years and drink have eroded the day's surplus details. But no paraphrasing 
of Mr. El Camino's words will ever be necessary. Each one has a permanent, almost reverent place in my recall, like a chiseled epitaph on a family gravestone. They are always with me. When you don't diversify, you get screwed! Ding! <laughs> he brought the blunt end of the axe down like a sledgehammer on the windshield of his own car. Limping southbound, I saw Pitt standing about 20 yards ahead on the left side of the road. He hadn't completely abandoned me, but he wasn't coming back for me either. I started scanning for Gina. She could run faster than both of us, and I figured she was a quarter mile away by now. When I reached Pitt, I kept searching. Didn't see her on the left shoulder. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. Where's Gina? I gazed across the highway to the other side. She wasn't there either. Don't know. I thought she was with you. Figured you both would be up ahead of... And that's when it dawned on me. I had seen Pitt get out of the car, but not Gina. My stomach seized as I turned around. Oh, God. Back in the car, she was tugging frantically at her seatbelt. Couple of real heroes we were. She can't get the buckle unlatched. Come on. I motioned for Pitt to follow me, but he wouldn't move a step. His jaw quivered and his eyes were frozen in an unblinking gape. I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he just didn't hear me. Pitt, come on. Pitt shook his head slowly, eyes still unblinking. Son of a bitch. So there I was, about to rush back toward an axe-wielding maniac to save my soon-to-be ex-girlfriend who had been banging my best friend. If I were successful in this venture, the one most likely to benefit would be Pitt, the same asshole who wouldn't even take a step in her direction. I turned away, disgusted, and started my journey back toward Gina. If ever there was a bigger schmuck than me, surely his 18th birthday wasn't this crappy. By this time, Mr. El Camino had finished demolishing the glass in his car and looked ready to move on. He staggered toward an abandoned Toyota just behind my car. If he had spent the same amount of time smashing the Toyota's windows, I had less than a minute before he would move forward again and notice Gina. If I stayed low and quiet, Mr. El Camino might not observe my approach. I could slip Gina out of the car. We could get away before Mr. El Camino finished with the Toyota. When I was just a few car lengths away, Gina looked up and saw me. I held my finger to my lips as I ran, but Mr. El Camino spun on his heel, glaring in Gina's direction. He yanked the axe from the Toyota's windshield, showering safety glass onto the asphalt. So much for my plan. My credit is... Spotless! What did you see? <laughs> he stalked towards my car, glass crackling under his boots. When he reached the passenger window, he leaned over and peered in. 
Gina brought her hands up to fend off the man's gaze. You tossed me my line of credit! You bitch! It's not nice to mess with a man's livelihood! He brought the axe up to his shoulder like a baseball player taking a batter's stance. Then he swung and smashed the side window. My heart sank as Gina's lifeless form filled my imagination. But Gina's head popped into view, still intact. She had ducked under the dashboard, narrowly missing the axe, and now squirmed to avoid the blade again as Mr. El Camino pulled it from the car. The maniac reared back, weapon held high for another blow. I didn't think Gina could dodge another swing, so I executed the first idea that popped into my head. Get his attention. Hey, asshole! Oh, what? I yanked the Dumbo Pez dispenser from my shirt pocket and threw it at him. <clears throat> Pitt and I had been throwing Pez dispensers at each other since we were eight. With a fully loaded dispenser, we had the accuracy of a South African bushman hurling spears. It tumbled through the air, head over end. Dumbo's ears providing the perfect counterbalance to its bright blue stem. Mr. El Camino looked up just in time for Dumbo to hit him square in the forehead. The mental slide I have of this scene reminds me of a cell from a cartoon. That moment when Elmer Fudd with a shotgun in hand finally notices that wascally wabbit Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Do you know what it takes to build a well-diversified portfolio? Mr. El Camino stepped toward me. I stopped about six feet from him, a distance I hoped was out of axe range. No, not really. I have perfect credit. He pointed to himself and took another step. I've done his club. Platinum card. That's pretty sweet. But they say I'm spent. He took another step. Sweat and blood were dripping from his scalp. Who says? Cancel my card. The same day they send me an application for a new one. Ding! That says I'm pre-approved. Spray from his saliva fell just short of my shoes. I was definitely within axe range. I took a step back. That's a real bitch. I perfect He gripped the axe handle with both hands. His knuckles turned white, and his whole body started to quiver like a volcano just moments away from an eruption. I started to take another step back. Look, I think... Here's a thought! Mr. El Camino reared up with the axe. In that split second before he swung, two choices flashed in my mind. Move forward, or move back. Mystifying to me, even today, I rushed forward and reached for the axe handle as he swung. 
My left hand missed, but my right caught it firmly. I tried to twist the weapon away, but he brought the butt of the handle up fast, catching my chin. Time for the closing bell! I staggered back, collapsing onto the hood of a station wagon. I was dazed, but still had enough sense to move as the axe blade smashed down next to me, slicing into the metal. I tumbled to the asphalt, sprawling between the station wagon's bumper and the ass end of a box truck. I glimpsed the flash of metal in my peripheral vision and ducked. The axe slashed through the air above my head and thudded into the wooden rollaway door of the box truck. El Camino ripped the axe violently out of the door. Oh, come on! Sending wooden shards and dust into my face. He brought the axe up again, but I rolled under the bumper of the truck, hoping it was wide enough to offer protection. The blade crashed down on the metal bumper. Sparks flew overhead like fireworks. He raised the axe again. Feet were only inches from his leg. I kicked at his knee hard, connecting squarely. In action films, I had seen this move a dozen times send bad guys tumbling to the ground, allowing Bruce Willis or Jackie Chan those precious moments they needed to regain their feet and take control of the situation. Apparently, Mr. El Camino hadn't seen any of those movies. He paused for a moment, resting the axe on his shoulder. He glanced down at his knee. At least my Nancy boy kick had registered with him. Not the result I was going for, but I did gain a moment. I was about to scurry under the truck for cover, but caught sight of someone's feet moving behind Mr. El Camino. Those checkerboard cats were Gina's. She must have solved her seatbelt problem and was moving to help me. I could see her tiptoeing behind the maniac, and I wondered what her plan could be. There were a few heavy objects in my car she could use to smash him on the head. Old cans of Red Bull, my granddad's wrench, even a brick I used when parking on a hill. All I had to do was keep this guy's attention until she could finish sneaking up behind him. But as she moved away, instead of toward me, I got a sinking feeling. Son of a chicken shit bitch. I gazed up at Mr. El Camino. His head tilted, eyes narrowing and I imagined him saying, Hey, remember me? The axe came off his shoulder, and for an instant, I entertained the idea of not dodging the blow. Just let the finely crafted blade split my skull open and avoid months of pain and self-pity. A birthday present to me wrapped up and delivered by an axe-wielding nutjob. But in that insane and chaotic moment, one in which I could have gone either way, live or die, words of wisdom filtered down from an unlikely source, Mr. El Camino. Women can diminish a man's financial stability, economic castration. I had no idea what that meant. Somehow his words spoke to me. It's like when Frank Sinatra starts doing that doobie doo stuff. 
Nobody knows what the hell he's saying, but everybody seems to get it. El Camino swung the axe, and I ducked. The blade crashed into the steel bumper again, sending more sparks flying. He reared back for another assault and swung at a lower angle, this time targeting my flailing legs. I drew my feet into a fetal position, banging my knees on the truck's undercarriage. The blade clipped the bottom of my shoes, then punctured the frayed sidewall of the truck's rear tire. There was a great explosion of air that pelted my cheek with rubber. It stung like a bitch, but I ignored it and squirmed farther under the truck. El Camino didn't seem phased by the explosion. He pulled the axe from the tire and took another swing. It was a wild effort, and it went wide, gouging the asphalt next to my hip. I'm the turnstocks could be elusive! He crouched down. I had managed to scoot my entire body under the truck, save from further swings. I hoped he would move on to more easily dispatched victims. He reached under the truck and clawed at my feet. I kicked him and moved away, my forehead scraping on the grimy muffler. I am not over my limit! He seized my shoe and yanked me toward him, but I kicked off the shoe. His free hand grasped my other ankle, and his grip tightened. I started sliding across the pavement, looking for something to grab. Anything! I caught the rear axle, which, to my surprise, is one of the greasiest things you can grab under a vehicle. Really should have taken auto shop in high school. My hand slid down the slimy shaft as Mr. El Camino dragged me out with ease. Once he had pulled me back into the afternoon sun, he dropped my feet. Then he moved to pick up his axe. I sat up fast, feeling dizzy. After this point, my life consisted of sitting on the couch playing video games, shopping for Pez dispensers on eBay, and sexting Gina. Besides the occasional roll in the hay with my soon-to-be ex-girlfriend, I engaged in little physical activity. If this adrenaline-induced madness didn't end soon, I was gonna puke. El Camino turned toward me again. He raised the axe slowly over his head, preparing a straight-on, split-me-down-the-middle blow to end this cartoon. That's all, folks! I sat there, breathing heavy, my heart pounding in my temples. I tried to move, but exhaustion prevented me. I threw my hands up. Wait! El Camino tilted his head like a confused dog. The axe hung in the air, ready to descend and take my life. But for a moment, he stood still like some murderous statue, sculpted just for me. The next words from my mouth needed to be brilliant. They had to traverse the abyss of madness and somehow carry him over to the side of sanity, where people thought it unreasonable to slaughter folks on a highway with an axe. It's my birthday. Mr. El Camino processed these words. His head bobbed and one eye twitched. It was like watching a broken machine, wheels and gears grinding away, but unable to complete their tasks. 
His head suddenly became still, and for an instant he looked like a man who had just returned from a long and relaxing trip. His mouth opened slowly. I prepared myself for more of his financial nonsense, but his next words were utterly and completely sane. Oh, happy birthday. It was the only birthday wish I would get all day. I looked at his face, and then the axe. Thank you. El Camino took a long breath, and as he exhaled, he became insane again. Eyes wide, a murderous grin beneath his blood-spotted cheeks. He raised the axe towards the sun. I wanted to dodge the blow. I know I was going to try, but... I also knew my body was done. I held my breath and waited. I was marginally aware of small impacts on the truck behind me, but I had no idea what they could be until the crimson holes in the front of El Camino's shirt started to thicken blood. His blood. Mr. El Camino dropped to his knees. Behind him stood the youngest highway patrol officer I had ever seen. He didn't look old enough to go to his high school prom, let alone hold a 9mm pistol, gray smoke drifting from the muzzle. If I live a hundred years, I swear I'll never utter the phrase, Where's a cop when you need one? The officer might have said something, but an explosion of pain in my left foot kept me from registering it. Mr. El Camino had let the axe slip from his hands. The blunt end landed so hard that it separated the sole of my shoe from the canvas. Even in death, El Camino was still swinging. Two hours later, a paramedic determined, much to my surprise, that my foot was unbroken. Hospital x-rays backed up his on-the-scene assessment, but I think they all missed something. Every once in a while, even years later, I'll feel an unyielding urge to limp. I imagine a small permanent fracture deep inside the bone, so deep x-rays can't detect it. Maybe they aren't meant to. After the paramedics released me, I hobbled over to the shoulder where Mr. El Camino lay quietly under a yellow tarp. I sat down next to the body as if we were old friends, and in a way we were. To paraphrase Oscar Wilde, at least this friend tried to stab me in the front. Although my birthday had been rough, Mr. El Camino's day had been a bit worse. The evening news would report that Mr. Alec El Camino Harrison, an airline mechanic at Fresno International, had become widowed by his own hand. Earlier that morning, he had chopped his wife into a dozen pieces, then tenderly boxed up each part and gift-wrapped them. He deposited the packages in night drops at several local banks. The news made no mention of Mr. Harrison's financial situation. On the day he died, he had just turned 46. Happy birthday. The girl in the ambulance says this belongs to you? 
The young officer who had saved my life held out the Dumbo Pez dispenser. Up close, he didn't look as young as when I first laid eyes on him, but he could still pass for a high school senior in a 21 Jump Street kind of way. I took the toy from him. Thanks. If the paramedics are done with you, my sergeant wants to get your statement. He pointed to a burly cop standing behind the ambulance. I could see Pitt in the back with Gina, who was having her head looked at. Her hair was full of glass, and she had a few cuts on her scalp, but nothing serious. I'll be there in a minute. The officer nodded, then turned on his heel, leaving me to my thoughts. Later that evening, Gina's father picked her up at the hospital. Other than video news coverage, I never saw her again. About six months ago, she sent me a text. I stared at the message for a long time, but never responded. Didn't see any point. I'm not sure how long she and Pitt lasted after that day. Pitt never talked about it, and I sure as hell wasn't going to ask. Keeping in touch grew harder after graduation. My childhood friend still sends me an email now and again from whatever part of the world he's in. Last I heard, he was diving with sharks off the Australian coast. The latest daredevil stunt, much like his base jump off the Eiffel Tower. There's a video of it on YouTube, but I never looked. I'm not really sure what he's chasing with all these idiotic escapades. Maybe it's courage? Maybe it's something else. As for me, I never attempted another trip to the L.A. toy convention. After that day, I was kind of done with toys, comic books, and video games. I never realized how much money I'd been pissing away on all that crap until I stopped. Nowadays, my funds are well managed in a very versatile portfolio, with stocks, CDs, and even a bit of real estate. You see, the key to a really well-built portfolio is diversification. Cha-ching, cha-ching. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit the nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. 
No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.